Please hold the line. We will answer your call as soon as possible. Welcome to this edition of Please Hold. Today I'm chatting with Brian Mullins, the founder and CEO of Daiquiri. Daiquiri is an augmented reality platform company and is truly one of the few companies that is commercializing augmented reality successfully. So really excited to be here and thanks for coming on. Oh, th thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Yeah. So actually, I wasn't planning on asking this question, but Mr. Laserbeam, uh, <laughs> when did you first decide on that as a Twitter handle and uh, why? Yeah, that's a, a, a good one. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to say that um, you know, I've always been fascinated with lasers and that there was a real meaning behind it. But the, the truth is, um, uh, my, my wife asked me why I wasn't on Twitter years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of late to the Twitter game and every version of Brian Mullins was taken. And, um, and I was kind of bummed out actually, and I wasn't going to join. And um, she said, no, you got to join. Maybe, maybe look and see what would you have called yourself when you were a kid? And I said, that's dumb. I would have called myself Mr. Laserbeam. And I said, no, wait, hold on. I'm going to go look and see if that's available. And so the rest is history. Um, so it actually there's, a bunch of other, there's a bunch of nerds out there that are greatly disappointed <laughs> they couldn't be Mr. Laserbeam. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in all fairness, I have always been <laughs> fascinated with all things lasers and light, and it, you know, it, it plays a big part in what we're doing and some of the cool new tech that we have. But sure. uh, it was definitely um, at first a snarky joke. Well, as, as someone who has a very boring Twitter handle, which is just Schneider, my last name, <laughs> I'm honored to be talking to Mr. Laserbeam. Thank you. Um, so my first question is about where you went to school. Um, you went to the Merchant Marine Academy That's right. for an engineering degree. It's not really your typical university. Were you planning on going in the Navy or what happened? Um, yeah, so the, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy is uh, one of the five federal service academies, like the Air Force, uh, Navy, um, uh, and most people don't hear about it. We, we refer to it as one of the America's best kept secrets. Um, it's a small university. Um, <clears throat> it's actually, uh, uh, when you graduate from it, you're an officer in the Navy. Um, and you focus on um, you know uh, the the maritime industry, so shipping and engineering, marine engineering. Um, and uh, one of my one of my uncles went there, and so I learned about the school. Um, and I thought it was a really really cool place to get an engineering application. And you spend one of your four years um, actually at sea on ships, and so you're doing a um, kind of a, a self guided learning program and working in, in the engine room. Uh, if you're an engineer, you can, you can be a, a deck officer and do navigation and logistics. Um, I was an engineer, and, and so I'd, I'd work in the engine room on, on these giant engines that were, were as big as buildings, wow. like 60,000 horsepower diesel engines. And, and, and um, uh, it's just a really great way to learn engineering and, and applied physics and, and, and put them to use. And, uh, and then when you're back at the academy for three years, it's, uh, you know, it's a military education. And, and you're trained as, a, as an officer in the Navy. And um, you know, you, you know, I think everyone in my family uh, served in the armed forces. And so it was, it was something that was compelling to me. And did you go serve in the Navy afterwards? Um, I took a, a, com a commission in the Naval, Naval Reserve. Um, and then um, I worked for the Department of Transportation doing simulation. And then I worked at the Space Naval Warfare Lab um, doing command and control systems. Um, so in a kind of a technical position. Um, but then um, I was actually commissioned as an officer in the Naval Reserve. And I did that for about eight years. So. Okay. Wow. Very, very unique background for a tech founder. Um, I read that the first time you experienced augmented reality was at the academy while you were training sailors to dock ships. Is yeah. that an accurate story? So, and this was the early to mid 90s, right? So early 90s, yeah. So it's. Um, what the hell was augmented reality then? <laughs> it, was, it was very different. Um, you know, I, I, nobody. Nobody really called it AR 
Um, actually, it's not true. So Boeing, we're doing um, uh, aircraft assembly with, with kind of electronic work instructions and head-up display that was, was pretty early AR, about the same time. Um, and this, I, this was actually at a facility next to the academy, but it, it was after I'd graduated and I was working for DOT. Um, and it was this big ship simulator. So it was like a flight simulator, but for, for boats. And uh, they had a model of a ship under roof, a really big building. And you could go down to the engine room, you could go up on the bridge, and there'd be you know, the, the ship's wheel and all these different navigation stations. And if you looked out in the distance uh, through the windows, there was like 50 feet out was a giant simulator. So like a flight simulator, um, you know, and anywhere you looked in the distance, you could see you know, some port around the world. And, you know, it was, it was essentially a really expensive video game. And so it was this, <laughs> this kind of mixed reality simulation technology. So it wasn't virtual reality, right? I wasn't in a, you know, a, a, this kind of head-mounted display that was totally, you know, enclosing you. Like, there was a physical ship's bridge there with physical things. And then okay. we added content on the projected screens. And then we had these, um, these binoculars, right? And, and if you just pointed regular binoculars at the screens, you'd just see pixels. So you had to have displays in the binoculars too, right? And this was this kind of weird mixed reality. Um, and, and so, you know, at the time we just called it simulator or simulation technology, um, but it was definitely the precursor to a lot of the things that we do today and a lot of things that, you know, your phone can do. It took a practically a supercomputer worth of computer worth the size of, power of a back ship. Then. Yeah, <laughs> nearly the size of the ship. Wow, I can't even imagine what that must have been like yeah, in the mid 90s. So you co-founded a company called U.S. Mechatronics and ran it for three years prior to founding Daiquiri. What did that company do? Um, so that, did, that was a, a software company that did uh, um, a little bit of computer vision, but um, pattern matching software. Um, and it, it was in, um, first in uh, kind of the oil and gas industry, and then it, it um, uh, got a little bit of commercial success selling computer vision software for um, the stone industry, so you could uh, stone. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a little like bit quarries. Yeah, like quarries, except um, you know when you get a, a stone for your countertops, um, like what the stone's going to look like and how the veins work. You know, no, there's no such thing as a piece of stone that's as big as a kitchen, but everybody wants the the, the lines to go and and look like they came from one giant stone, and so they actually have to match those. And so this system would would have this inventory of all the slabs at a producer. You know, like that, that had been cut out of a quarry, it could be thousands, and then you'd, you'd lay out the kitchen and it would tell you which slabs to use in which direction to make it look like it was one giant piece. It, mm. was, a, it was actually a pretty, pretty cool piece of, of software and an and, and early computer vision application. What happened to the company? Uh, we, sold, we sold out the system and, uh, you know, it was kind of my first uh, you know, m mediocre success. I, I think uh, I learned a little bit about starting tech companies and, and uh, you know, focusing on things at scale and, and, and things that have a high service component. You gotta, you gotta be careful of unless you're in a service business, right? They're two very different things. Sounds like that was your only mediocre success. But we'll <laughs> talk about Daiquiri yeah. in a minute. Um, so for any non-augmented reality nerds watching us, can you explain the difference between 3D and 4D and virtual reality and augmented reality? Sure. And how do yeah. all these things come together? Um, so I think it's probably best to start with uh, VR and AR, right? And because most people understand virtual reality. I, you know, I put on a headset and I go to a different world, right? And it totally closes me in. And the idea is to fool my senses into thinking <clears> that somewhere else. And, um, and the technology has gotten really good, right? And it's, it's this really dedicated and curated experience. And to the point where it's, it's physically curated, right? Like I, I can only be in a certain room in my house, right? Mm -hmm. 
or I'll fall over the couch. Um, and, and if you look on the other side of the fence with augmented reality, you see the world around you. The displays are always transparent, right? And so I see the world and then the content goes on top of it. And the best they are, you know, you, you, you try and blur the lines so that it, it's not indistinguishable. I don't think that technology really, really is there yet, but, but you, you want to make it seem as natural as possible and so easy to interact with. But the main, the main difference is you're in your world, you're in the real world when you have these experiences. So if, if VR is this curated experience, it's, it's a lot like sitting in front of a desktop computer, whereas AR is about being mobile. It's literally about taking it with you and having these virtual experiences anywhere. Okay. Um, and so I think the, when you think about 3D and you know, 4D, um, you know, 3D, like 2D even, you know, everybody understands 2D is a picture, it's what's on your screen. 3D is, is um, you, know, you put on a pair of glasses or, or you, you look at a, you know, a video game and it's rendered in 3D on a 2D screen. Um, you know, we, when we say 4D, we think about um, you know, the actual four dimensions, which are space and time, and, and, and it's the place that you're at, and you're having these experiences here, and we think it's a really good kind of paradigm for understanding what AR is. It's, it's these virtual content that happens where you're at. Um, we also think that things like virtual reality and, and augmented reality, you know, when they're successful, they'll sound quaint. Right, like nobody will say augmented reality. Once augmented reality is good, it'll be like calling the internet the information superhighway. Right? It just won't, you know. Just people will will stop referring to it once it's so good that it's just invisible. Mm -hmm. Great explanation. Um, <clears throat> so I remember in 2010, around the time you started Daiquiri, Yelp launched an augmented reality feature yeah. in their app. Yeah, and. It was really simple. I could point my phone inside the Yelp app over there, yeah. and it would sort of show me the restaurants over there floating around their exact locations. Yeah. And it was so cool, and everyone was talking about it, and then it just went away because it wasn't that useful. It was just kind of gimmicky. Um, I'm curious what you saw in 2010 when everyone was kind of using AR in a kind of a gimmicky way. What, what did you see to start a whole company around AR? Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because when you're when you're in your own bubble, like you're focused on AR every day. I think back then, you know, we had already started Daiquiri, and the monocle comes out, and we're thinking, "Oh shit, everybody's going to do AR now." Someone like Yelp is doing it. It's over, right? And and we're like, "Okay, no, it's not over. Obviously, we're we do these industrial things, we do all these other stuff. Um, you know, it's just cool that people are doing AR." The truth is, it was just a blip, right? It was this kind of first, you know, um, you know, experiment with with AR and and, and a new way to look at location. Um, you know, but, but uh, you know, it's still, still not quite ready. I think, you know, our moment, my moment at Daiquiri was really understanding about the same time frame in 2010 when the iPhone 4 came out and it had multiple cores in the processor. Like you could do computer vision in one and you could put content in the other core and now I had the capability of making AR happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it was more of kind of a technical moment, you know, that okay, now AR is going to start to be really viable. Um, you know, but, but I think Aside from experiments, even today, you know, culturally, AR's not yet ready for consumers. You know, we, we've we've always, you know, um, I think pursued more of enterprise and business sales and and, and products that support that, um, largely because we think ARs like cell phones, right? They start out and they're the briefcase that you take with you, and it's valuable to pay a lot of money for that briefcase because it it helped you stay connected and make a decision, right? But but it was only valuable to somebody you know, who was working where, where the ROI was there. And, but that funded the infrastructure for the, the, the briefcase to become a car phone. 
right? And then consumers got car phones. We used to actually call them car phones. I remember. And, and then, um, Not and then, that young. Yeah, right. And then um, that infrastructure led to you know, what we have today with, with smartphones. Um, I think AR is the same way, right? It's just this whole new technology the valuable applications are going to build the the infrastructure and then you know consumers will have in their vehicles they'll have it in these things that they they buy and amortize over time or, or maybe we won't buy cars maybe maybe we'll use a ride-sharing service but they'll all come with it and it'll be something you do while you're getting driven around well the same thing happened to the price i remember the well first of all when the in the briefcase days one of the first cell phone plans i had this was back in high school was 30 dollars a month for 30 minutes yeah and i remember some, some days not talking to my cell phone at all so I could use it for two minutes the next day and not go over those 30 minutes. That was very expensive. And then uh, the phone itself, car phones used to cost $1,500 or $2,000. And now if you don't want a smartphone or even if you do want some smartphones, it's free. Yeah. Is the same thing going to happen here? I think so. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of time. I think you know, technology in general progresses a lot faster today. So it won't be three decades like it was with mobile phones. Mm -hmm. but, but I also you know, think realistically consumer AR you know, in a pair of glasses is still in the in the five to seven year time frame. You know, if you if you had the best device today, it would still take a few years to convince people that they needed it, that they wanted to use it. Why didn't Google Glass work? Because that there was a lot of engineering in there. Was it too nerdy? Was it not useful enough? What what went wrong? You know, I love Google Glass because it started the conversation in a much bigger way, and 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 I think they started the conversation in a way that only Google could have. Um, but I, I honestly believe the failure of Google Glass was they focused on the wrong design constraint. They really wanted it to be fashionable. Um, so they made a device that was so small and, and that you could wear it all day long and, and it, would, it would fit in you know, fashionably um, that they took away all the features that would actually make you want to wear it all day. Mm. And, and I think that that was a, a design constraint that, that was the, the critical failure. Of, of so class. you think it was a utility thing, not anything else? Yeah, you still had to bridge a, a, a geekiness gap wearing Google Glass. And people would be willing to do probably a larger geekiness gap if it did a lot for them. Mm -hmm. um, but Google Glass was, was such a passive and, and low footprint product that it didn't deliver the features that, that people really wanted it to have. Yep, that makes sense. Um, so when we first met in 2012, I remember part of what you guys were doing was ads for car manufacturers from magazines. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you get from there to the smart helmet? It was, uh, it's interesting, it, it's, it's almost how did we get from Smart Helmet to the ads. Um, I don't think we ever conceived that we'd building, be building the hardware at first, um, but we definitely had focused on first-person applications of AR that made work better. Um, and my first deck uh, that I did in 2010 had all of these work applications that are things that we're finally doing with the Smart Helmet and, and some of our other products. Um, which is exciting, but but in 2010, nobody knew what AR was, and the hardware couldn't deliver on it. Even even at enterprise prices, it, it couldn't actually you know hit the bar for for solving the problem. And so you know, faced with the difficulty in raising money in kind of a venture climate that didn't understand AR yet, um, you know, we we were forced to uh, you know pivot and do services and, and and you know while we were developing our core you know CV tech. Um, actually, you know, uh, do advertisements, uh, you know, work in visualization. And as, as much as possible, we wanted it to be compatible with building out the, the bigger platform. 
Um, but but you know, not only did we do visualization for car companies, you know, uh, we did you know interactive print ads in, in you know entertainment magazines and and all all kinds of early AR um, because those types of early adopters were willing to to take the risk and try something new and and, and it was a revenue stream for us. So you built an agent. What's that? I, th I, said, I think we learned a lot from it, but. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was definitely a little bit of a tangent. So you built an agency to pay the bills until you could raise enough capital to not do it anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Okay. And was it sort of like the early days of the internet? I remember back in 99, 2000, when I had my first web agency, I could walk into a client and they'd say, what's the website going to cost? And I would just, $100,000. Okay. <laughs> was, it, was it that uh, new or were there already some constraints around what people were willing to spend on AR? No, I think it was definitely that. I think the agency spend, you know, you, you, you have the background and know that you walk in and if you have the right amount of, of appeal in the technology and the experience, you know, it's, it's really just, a, you know, a, almost a, you know, how, how much excitement equals how big you can, how much you can ask for, right? And then, um, you know, those people are experts in turning that excitement into, you know, um, conversion and, and, you know, for their customers. And so it was actually a really good synergy. But yeah, you just walk in like the early days of the internet and say, I don't know, a million bucks? Like, okay, let's, when do we get started? Um, which, was, which was really cool and it was a really fun, fun period of AR. Were you tempted to just do that? Such an easy... We were. In fact, um, you know, I, I, I think that... profit center? We don't like to admit it, but we got distracted by that for, for at least two years mm. um, and, 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 you know, grew some of the company on that revenue. Um, that was a little bit hard to, to switch off when we decided, okay, no one's going to make the hardware for us, right? There's no, you know, even today, the only, the only other device that ships is the HoloLens, but, you know, you can't wear that in a hard hat at the same time or use it in direct sunlight. It's, it's not what our customers needed. So we had this moment a, a few years ago where we said, okay, we're going to have to make these devices and also we're going to have to stop the business that's making us our money, right? And so that's a little bit of it's an hard existential to pull the moment. Idea. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then, but if we hadn't, we would have been, we would have remained a service company forever. Yep. It's also hard to raise money as a service yeah, company. Exactly. Um, so you guys are really heavy into enterprise applications. Um, we talked about this a little bit with Google Glass, but when does AR truly take off with consumers? And do you, th is it, you know, Snapchat has made a sunglass with a little camera in it cool, but what that camera can do and what this thing can do are night and day. So what has to happen do consumers need AR? I mean, is it something that everyone will ever need? I, um, I, all great questions from consumer space. There's some applications that will drive it. You know, everybody thinks maybe it's gaming. Um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, venue entertainment, um, you know, theme parks, uh, you know, amusement is going to, you're going to see AR sooner. Um, but, but really, I think the driver from a consumer perspective is going to be in the car. Um, because then, you, you know, the, the, extra cost that's required to pull off AR is a small, you know, additional part of the, the material cost of a vehicle. And, and people buy a vehicle rarely, and so they're willing to invest a little bit more and, and, and get the one with AR. So I think that they'll, they'll definitely see AR there first, and it'll interact. This is a space that you guys are in today, right? This is one of those spaces, one of the fastest growing <clears throat> spaces for us actually is, is, in, is in augmented reality in the car and going from kind of traditional head-up display that just has content in one spot and then using the computer vision and the AR technologies to put it you know, out in the distance so that if I have to turn at the intersection of the head, that's where the arrow that I see is. Um, so less distraction, more natural experience. Um, and, and I think uh, definitely the place where consumers will see it first. I think if you look at AR today from a consumer standpoint, 
you know, the devices that are out there for consumers are very much like the Newton era for tablets. Like they are a tablet, right? That, uh, you know, they are AR devices, but they don't necessarily solve anybody's problem, right? And they're not necessarily going to get a whole bunch of people to buy them to play, you know, Minecraft on. Um, yeah, and that, that's coming from somebody who's probably one of the biggest optimists in augmented reality. I think we will all use it someday, and, and it'll be so seamless that we'll forget when we didn't use it. Um, it's just, you know, these things come, you know, a little bit slower um, as the technology develops and as the application infrastructure develops. And then when they do hit and they're an overnight success, it's because, you know, it's been brewing for a decade. So what form factor will that be? I think I asked you this last time we saw each other. Will it be a contact lens? What will it be? Um, I, I don't think it'll be a contact lens. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a lot like, uh, you know, cell phone versus a laptop, right? You get really cool stuff in cell phones and the lowest end laptops always going to perform more because just so you have more space and, 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 and can put more into it. Um, going from glasses to contact lenses is such a constraint on the technology that you can put into it that, that I think that it, it would, uh, prevent it from ever being able to catch on and, and actually be able to be performant. Um, but I people said that about computers that took up rooms before. No, I get it. I think actually my, my answer to that would be that I believe that another form factor, maybe you know, directly coupling to the optic nerve or, or even with the advancements in you know, direct brain interface, and I don't mean invasive like, like putting something in your brain, but rather just you know, look at how, how much uh, less expensive <clears throat> and more accurate um, EEG has gotten. Right? You can get a headband with EEG, start to read your brain waves. Um, you know, I think those types of non-invasive direct access look very interesting 10 years from now. And, and so you probably won't get the contact lens small enough to, to outpace that type of, you know, new, new method of interacting with the brain. So do we just install Bluetooth in babies when they're born and then we move on? Maybe. Maybe Bluetooth, Bluetooth like version 12 or something. <laughs> I, um, I think in the short term, people are going to want to experience AR without a device at all, though. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, you get in your car and it's there, but it, it's not something you have to wear, right? I'm just in the car, it's in the windows, and it feels, you know, so seamless that it's just part of my environment. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a magical extension of what's going on around me. That's when it becomes comfortable. I think that um, we'll see, you know, different types of projection technologies that add AR to things around us. At the same time, we will get glasses that people want to wear for, for certain types of experiences or certain, you know, certain types of engagement um, and that, that is another popular way to experience AR. So I think it blends together, much like screens do. You know, the screen on your phone and the screen in your TV are the same base technologies, but you experience them very differently. Yep. Makes sense. Um, when, when, how far away is that future? When you think of consumers and mass adoption of AR, like, Traditionally, technology starts in enterprise because companies can afford it, and then eventually gets commoditized, and the consumers can afford them in some sort of application. So, is that five years off, fifteen years off? When do you think that's going to happen? Um, I think that you know over the next two years with industrial, the the ramp is already accelerating pretty pretty spectacularly. So, industrial and, and moving into enterprise space, and and then I think education's right behind it. Um, uh, you know, that, that's something that people will start to see, you know, if you're working in the next five years, you'll, you'll encounter AR at some point. Um, and, uh, and you'll see it there first. I think in, in automotive though, it's probably a very similar time frame where, where the head up display that's, you know, in, in maybe, you know, 10, 15% of cars today, um, over the next five years, it's probably in 30 to 50% and it has more and more of an AR feature. Um, the buying cycles are a little longer. The design cycles are a little bit longer for cars. 
um, but but in the five to ten year range, I think millions of people see AR every day in their car. I ride my bike a lot, and one of the things I would love is a pair of glasses that can show me where the potholes are and the places to avoid in the street while I'm biking. So if you could do that next, that would be great. Yeah, well, I think that those kind of purpose-built applications are are really, um, you know, slam dunks for AR, right? You know, you're going to see it, you know, in a motorcycle or in skiing or, or something where you're learning and situational awareness it has a drastic <clears throat> impact on safety. Um, and, and the threshold for content is actually a lot lower, right? You're just getting sensor data that, you know, maybe your motorcycle or your car already has that. Your bike could have it pretty easily, and it's just sharing it with you as the rider or the driver. Yep. You can also imagine I, if you go scuba diving, uh, wearing something that could somehow uh, tell you the exact kind of fish you're looking at, the exact kind of coral yeah. or seaweed or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm sure there's many applications. So tell me more about the Smart Helmet. Um, what does it do and what are the most common applications for it? Yeah, so the smart helmet was designed for field service engineers. So these are workers that have um, a pretty high level of education. They're, they have a lot of training from their current employer. Um, they usually use about $40,000 worth of tools, um, specialty tools and instruments. Um, and there's about 2.4 million of those workers in the world. Um, and they have to know a lot of different types of work instruction, right? So maybe one of those workers services wind turbines, right? And when I go out to a wind farm, I may go into one or maybe two wind turbines in a day, right? If they're, if they're out in the ocean, you know, it's, it's one a day. It takes me over, over an hour and a half to, to get up there. And, and so when I get there, I might be responsible for five or 600 different types of work, right? Um, fixing gearboxes, fixing generators, you know, performing inspections. And, and of those things, I, I may only do a couple of dozen regularly, and some of them I may only do once in my career. And if they have access to a device that they put on and they can see you know, a, a, a multi-dimensional representation of how to fix a generator, um, you know, the, the economies uh, of, of scale, the, the savings you get by having access to that knowledge, or if you don't, being able to connect to a worker on the other side of the planet who can see through your, your helmet's camera and, and give you directions in AR, like Monday morning football style, and, and show you how to fix that, that complex thing. I think it, it really changes the idea of what, what somebody can do and, and, and you know, really blurs the line between what you know, what you could know. Um, and that's, that's the first of the products. And it, and it, and it really it includes a lot of sensors that uh, map the environment with a depth sensor, a thermal camera so you can see heat and, and record the temperature of everything that, that you pass by. Um, so it's a, it's a massive, uh, you know, collection of data in those industrial environments that, that adds value on top of, of, you know, what it provides for the workers. What does one cost? So the smart helmets cost about $15,000, okay. um, which is, you know, uh, a really well-established um, price point and buying paradigm for industrial human-machine interface, right? These are tools that collect, connect to very expensive pieces of equipment, and they are the difference between you know, minutes of downtime or hours of downtime. Um, you know, the first time an expert doesn't have to get on a plane and fly to Brazil to fix, um, you know, a, a piece of equipment at a, at a pharmaceutical plant. Um, you know, it, it pays for itself. So it's a bargain. It is a bargain. Um, so how does virtual reality fit into this equation? Um, is there a scenario where there's a hybrid of AR and VR um, coming together ever, or how does VR uh, come into what you do? You know, I think people, pe people think that that's kind of probably a natural progression. Um, I, don't, I don't disagree, 
Um, I think today, you know, VR and AR um, collaborate and then VR extends, I think, well into the consumer space today based on what it can do and at the price points. Um, but, but in the industrial and the enterprise space, it's, a, it's still a very valuable training tool alongside AR where I can, I can be focused on learning something new in VR and then I can take some of those skills in AR and, and use them in real time. Um, I think AR's power to go where you're doing the work uh, maybe makes the VR training a little bit less necessary. Um, but the technologies inside are very similar. Mm. And I think that ultimately the display technologies probably blur together in a way that you could use a device for either mode. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that's going to be really good at first. You know, sometimes when you blend devices together, you get kind of this strange Frankenstein that, that nobody, that's not good at either one. Yeah. Um, but I think ultimately, maybe it's five years away, maybe it's 10 years away. Um, ultimately, I think there's only one device that can do, that can do either for okay. just about any application. What do you think of Magic Leap? Um, I think that it's very dangerous to add too much hype to an industry before you're ready. I think that um, if people make a lot of promises to consumers and don't deliver, the AR industry could experience the kind of AR winter where people don't care and people aren't interested from a consumer standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, from our perspective, I, I think our business is insulated because of our enterprise and, and, and automotive focus. Um, you know, but it, it's it's not good for the for any industry, I think, to overpromise and unless you're going to deliver. But we don't know. Maybe they'll deliver, um, and I think that would be good for everybody. Yeah. So you think it's pretty hyped up right now? I think AR in general is really hyped up. I, I, I don't think any one party is solely responsible. I think that lots of people put images of whales in gymnasiums or you know Minecraft in your living room and aren't aren't yet ready to deliver that. I think that that's, um, you know, it's one thing to lean forward on what's possible. It's another thing to kind of make, make these promises to consumers that want to spend their money and they want to have that experience. And, and, um, and kind of if you can't hit that bar that you promise, it reminds me a lot of the early days of video games where all the box covers were artist impressions. And it was hit or miss whether or not when you bought that game, you'd actually have that experience. Mm. And then as an industry, it's self-corrected and people only show actual rendered footage from the game. And I think it's a much more genuine and, and you know, honest representation of what you're going to experience. And I think AR gets there. Um, maybe like the VR industry for consumers, um, where 10 years ago, it was overhyped and promised. And then for a decade, you know, VR was, you know, in enterprise and government, you know, but we didn't have Oculus, we didn't have Vive, yeah. because of this VR winter. Um, AR is at risk for the same thing from a consumer perspective. Um, so, not to put too fine a point on it, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Did you like what you just saw? You want to see more? Go ahead and subscribe. We have new episodes every Tuesday. And if there's someone you want to see on the show, just add them as a comment down below. We'll take a look and we'll have them on if we can. Thanks again.